How do we respond as believers to tragedies like the murder of George Floyd, the rage of many in the African-American community, and the pain of many others from related injustices? On one side, some people would want to respond by canceling all voices who disagree with them. Some just live in pain of past mistreatment and brace themselves for what might come next. And others might feel powerless to speak up, disqualified by their own privilege. So how can we respond? Let's join Sojourn now to learn from the book of Amos, chapters 5, 6, and 8. 5, 23, and 24 says, Away with the noise of your songs. I will not listen to the music of your harps, but let justice roll on like a river, righteousness like a never-failing stream. Haunting verses, and especially after George Floyd, this last Monday we remembered Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. What a contrast between remembering him and what happened in Minneapolis this year. How do we respond as believers to the tragedy of George Floyd The rage of many in the African-American community became evident. The pain of many, and even how to deal with that, there's disagreement, deep disagreement in our society, and even within the body of Christ at times, there's disagreement about how to handle these things. Some on one side would, you know the word, cancel all voices that disagree with them. Others live in the pain of past mistreatment and they're braced for what's next. Some feel powerless to speak at all uh, because of being in maybe the more privileged situation. Uh, I've been in that situation where, you know, they say I'm white, male, old, educated. The only one I don't have is I'm not rich, right? So, you know, all the really honestly points of privilege and and social power, uh, sometimes you don't know how to respond as one, how can we? And so the church historically, I'm going to go back and illustrate this from about 100 years ago just to give us a picture here. The church historically has responded in a couple ways. So one response would be the response of the great evangelist D.L. Moody, wonderful man, But there was one part of his theology I I disagree with. He says he saw the world as a sinking ship, and he said, I just need to save as many as I can. So his idea was just get people to believe in Jesus and confess him as Lord. Of course, I agree with that, right? And then just the world's a sinking ship. Just get as many in the lifeboat as you can. The whole thing's burning anyway. You know, just give up. So basically caring for souls, but divorced from real life. Well, partly in response to that and partly from other theological reasons, at that same time, the modernists of his day, they were called, uh, in our day as well, tried to kind of make heaven on earth, the kingdom of God on earth, through political means and societal change. And really, if we think about that, neither are correct, right? And I don't want to go into a lot of history here, but evangelicals, that phrase that's used now has a lot of different meanings, but that phrase developed in the mid 20th century as a response to saying, no, a Christian should both care about the eternal destiny of someone and about their life conditions today, right? That bring those together. And that's really part of what formed what we can now call evangelical Christianity. But what is the right response? How do I witness to goodness in a fallen world? The minor prophets help us. And we're going to look at one this morning 
before we jump into our series out of Joshua, Judges, Samuel, and Kings this semester, but we want to just take one look at the Minor Prophets in honor of Martin Luther King Day and to address the things that we have seen around us in Minneapolis this year. So, uh, so here we go. Amos spoke God's heart in a fallen world, and he shows us how to demonstrate God's heart in a fallen world. So several ways to demonstrate God's heart. The first way to demonstrate God's heart is to refuse complacency. Read chapter 6, verses 1 to 7, and just get a feel for his situation in his day. Now, Amos was a prophet from Judah. He was not considered a regular prophet. He just got called. He was actually uh, worked with sycamore trees and sheep. He was kind of an agriculturalist, right? Successful agribusinessman, so to speak. And, uh, but God says, I want you to take a word up to northern Israel. They were split at the time, and they're getting idolatrous. I want you to bring a message to them. So, uh, so here's what he says. Verse, uh, chapter 6, verse 1. Woe to you who are complacent in Zion, and to you who feel secure on Mount Samaria, you notable men of the foremost nation to whom the people of Israel come. Go to Kelna, that's Assyria, and look at it, and from there go to great Hamath and down to the, to the uh, Gath and Philistia. Are they better off than your two kingdoms, Israel and Judah? Is their land larger than yours? You put off the evil day and bring near a reign of terror. You lie on beds inlaid with ivory and lounge on your couches. You dine on choice lambs and fatted calves. You strum away in your harps like David and improvise on musical instruments. You drink wine by the bowl full and use the finest lotions, but you do not grieve over the ruin of Joseph. Therefore, you'll be among the first to go into exile. Your feasting and lounging will end. So what is he saying? The complacent, all is well with me. Life of luxury and entertainment. Just a little bit of background. We could do a bunch, but it's a little bit. Israel was an agricultural economy, right? They didn't have a lot of luxury goods. They had to trade for those. They, had, they were an agricultural nation. And uh, so... They didn't have social security like we do or, or welfare, but they did have a social safety net to allow for, let's say somebody had a couple of years of bad crops. So there's a couple of things that they would do. One is that you weren't supposed to harvest too thoroughly. And when you got to the edge, ever seen the, even today in mechanized farming, on the edge of a field that doesn't quite get everything, right? Well, same for them. So you're supposed to leave the edges and the people that were really struggling that year, they could come to the edges of your field and they'd get enough to live on, right? But the other thing they did was every year they had a tithe that took care of the, the needs of the priests and Levites. But every third year, so kind of like another one-third tithe, they had an extra tithe just to care for the poor. Which is why if you've been to a membership class, sometimes I suggest... Maybe a third tithe is a good idea for giving to the poor for us, too. So they, you know, they had this tithe, a uh, regular tithe, but then they had this extra third every, th every third year just to take care of the needs of the poor. Well, the idea there is I do that because you're my brother, you're my sister. And as a fellow Israelite, they felt a kinship with one another, right? Both of these practices had ceased at this time. And so the urban poor, especially, that were dependent on day labor to survive, were very, very vulnerable. And the city merchants had a monopoly so they could sell grain at whatever price they wanted. And so these people 
are entirely at the mercy of the very, very wealthy. So what happened was it created a huge concentration of wealth and power at the very top of Israelite society. They didn't really have a middle class, but if you had your own little farm, at least you were kind of could live, right? But then the very, very wealthy had a huge amount of wealth and a lot of power. So for many of us today, our lives are sweet, happy, content. Probably you know the Lord. Most of you, you know, sitting here, you wouldn't be sitting here on a Sunday. Hey, I'm going to heaven. Life is good. Very easy to slip into a life of luxury and entertainment. We're certainly not among the 1% in our society. But nonetheless, there's a seduction of just managing my life, right? Surviving. Listen to Proverbs 24 just to get a feel here. If you falter in time of trouble, how small is your strength? Rescue those being led away to death. Hold back those staggering towards slaughter. If you say, but we knew nothing about this, does not he who weighs the heart perceive it? Does not he who guards your life know it? Will he not repay everyone according to what they've done? It's tempting to be willfully ignorant of trouble around us. It's really tempting. I myself like a life of convenience. And I could easily say, well, I got 10 kids. My hands are full, right? Jessica's hands are literally full right now, right? <laughs> and she's very busy, probably really tired, yeah. And, and Jessica, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> both, <laughs> right, in these days, absolutely, of course. But one reason we expose uh, this fellowship to different needs at different times is although many of you may feel like, man, I'm just struggling to make through the day, and I get it. Nonetheless, you may, you know, most of you probably are getting or have a college degree, not everyone, but most of us here have a lot of societal and economic power. Now, students, not yet, but potentially, you know, in the future, it's coming, right? And so we want to think about how we use that, how we use that power, social economic power. And the core motivation for me, just let me briefly take you to my favorite offering verse, but it fits all of life, really. This is becoming a new life verse for me. 2 Corinthians 8, 9. It is in the midst of a discussion of offerings by Paul, but it's really about everything in life. Paul says, for you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, you're supposed to picture the second person of the Trinity in eternal fellowship, Father, Son, and Spirit in heaven, every need, you know, glory and majesty. Although he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor so that you through his poverty might become rich. He's talking about the incarnation, suffering, death of Jesus Christ, and of course his resurrection. He's saying, when you look at how Jesus lived, suffered, and died, that is the pattern for the Christian life. That's what we call the cruciform life, right? That's the idea. And it breaks both apathy and legalism. 
It breaks apathy because how can we remain indifferent? But it breaks legalism because we don't do it because we have to, because God will be mad. We don't do it because what will someone think? What matters is what he thinks. It's because he himself modeled becoming poor to make many rich. Wow, so powerful, our mighty Savior. So the seduction is my personal peace and prosperity. But the model is Jesus Christ. The first way that we demonstrate God's heart is to refuse complacency. There's another way to demonstrate God's heart. Second way to demonstrate God's heart is to stand for what is right. Let's go back to the verses we read earlier. Chapter 5, verse 18. Woe to you who long for the day of the Lord. Why do you long for the day of the Lord? That day will be darkness, not light. What? <laughs> it is a it is as though a man fled from a lion only to meet a bear, as though he entered his house, rested his hand on the wall only to have a snake bite him. Will not the day of the Lord be darkness, not light, pitch dark without a ray of brightness? I hate, I despise your religious feasts. I cannot stand your assemblies, even though you bring me burnt offerings and grain offerings, I will not accept them. Though you bring choice fellowship offerings, I will have no regard for them. Away with the noise of your songs. I'll not listen to the music of your hearts, but let justice roll on like a river, righteousness like a never-falling stream. So here's what's happening. Uh, again, the upper echelon of Israel is experiencing prosperity. There was a guy named Jeroboam II that became king. He was a great military leader. He led Israel to their largest extent in territory ever in history, including today, bigger than they ever would be uh, again. They had, he was uh, wise in worldly ways, so they had great prosperity. There was blessing. There was money was flowing, at least for the upper echelon. Same in southern Judah under Uzziah. Things were great, but what was wrong was they were not caring for the poor in their society. And you may not know this, but that's exactly what started the prophetic movement that we now have recorded in our Bible. Right? When they did all this, there were no prophets written yet. No, uh, Jonah was around, but there was no written Bible books. Any, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Amos, Hosea, they are all in the future. Well, Amos and Hosea and Isaiah, right at this time, due to these conditions, God raises them up and says, you've got to talk to these people because what, what do they think? They're blessed. There's plenty of money. They're having a good life. So surely God must be pleased with my life. And so God raises up these prophets and say, no. God's blessing is more than having enough. It's more than being content with your own life. When you're blind willfully to what's going on around you, they long for the day of the Lord. It's like we, us saying we long for Jesus to come back. Well, I sure do. But God says that day will be darkness because of worship without justice. So how does this apply today? Two primary areas, and we've been talking about them lately at Sojourn. They're all rooted in our common humanity. First of all, last week we talked about issues relating to life, resisting abortion, caring for the elderly, caring for the, the disabled, reasonable health care for all. All these things are things that Christians care about. Now, Christians might disagree and we should do so respectfully and lovingly 
on, like, let's say, what level of involvement the government or the church should have. Okay, you can, you know, that's a discussion politically. That's okay. But there shouldn't be a debate about whether we care. Right? Okay, we might be, you know, well, I think the government should do this much and then the church should do it. Whatever. Okay, great. But we should care that the needs are met. It's not okay, especially to have, a, have hunger among Christians, brothers and sisters in Christ. But also then issues of racial justice. And you may know that historically, these are actually connected. Did you know that historically, far more African-American babies have been targeted for ab abortion than any other ethnic group in our nation? What is that? Racism of the most murderous sort. Now, this is a dicey issue for many of us. Some Caucasian Christians, okay, that's I'm talking about myself now, can become very defensive around this issue because you feel like, well, I, man, I mean, I really, I don't, you know, I don't look down on anybody and, I, and you want to feel like you're a good person, right? Like, oh, you know, no, really, I, I, I don't, you know, I, I'm, I'm colorblind. Everyone's the same to me, right? We want to be, feel just. You don't want to be labeled racist. You can feel very defensive. Let me just say, when you know Jesus, what, actually, Peter set me up. What does he say? When he really saw who Jesus was, what was his first response? I'm a sinful man. Can we settle that? Okay. There, you've repented of everything you know about. It's like an onion. Been walking with the Lord since I was 18. He just keeps peeling the layers. It's okay. There's a humility, okay? You don't have to defend yourself. Relax. Some approach the issue saying that certain people, say a white male, you can't understand. Your position in society, you're, you're hopelessly blind. Okay, well, I don't think we need to be defensive. I don't think we need to be hopeless. What's the Bible saying? Let justice roll on like a river. Righteousness like a never-failing stream. It's very simple. A Bible believer will want to stand up for those who are mistreated. Jesus told a parable about, you know, who's my neighbor? This is a great one, right? We, we're just like the lawyer. We want to we limit, you know. It's like, it's too much, right? Who's my neighbor? How about, you know, how about the guy on just one block away? That's cool. I can handle that, you know. Two blocks away. Whoa, you know, right? Who's our neighbor? You know the parable. Who's our neighbor? The person in need. The person in need that we can see in front of us, right? What bothers you? It bothers me that people I know, friends, have insulting things said to them. Talk to some of your immigrant friends here in church. They, they won't mention it unless you ask them. Then they'll tell you. Friends of color, uh, born in America as well. 
That bothers me. It bothers me that people I know feel nervous around police. Now, I'm not against police. You understand what I'm saying? I, I, it bothers me that the dynamic is that that has to be a question for them. It doesn't mean I'm blaming anybody, but I'm saying, right? So what can I do? I can listen patiently to those with painful experiences. Right? I can listen. I don't have to fix it. We, we teach this to small group leaders in our church, right? One of the first things, early small group leader experiences, sometimes somebody has a problem and you want to fix it. Don't have to fix anything. We tell that to husbands too, by the way. In premarital, yeah. <laughs> My wife's sharing all this stuff. Yeah, don't, you don't have to fix it, okay? Just listen. <laughs> but the same thing is true in any relationship, right? Don't take it on. You're not Jesus, okay? So relax. Okay, you cannot heal the society. Okay, just relax. Just love one another and listen. And care. And say, yeah, that's not right. I'm sorry you experienced that. And say, that's not just. So second way to demonstrate God's heart is to stand for what's right. Third way to demonstrate God's heart is to listen. Now, we need to listen to people, but we also need to listen to God. And this is the most chilling word in the whole book of Amos. Chapter 8, verses 11 and 12. I pray we never experience this as a society, but I'm nervous about it. The days are coming, declares the sovereign Lord, when I will send a famine through the land, not a famine of food or a thirst for water, but a famine of hearing the words of the Lord. Men will stagger from sea to sea and wander from north to east, searching for the word of the Lord, but they'll not find it. There comes a point when a nation or a people have been playing with God's word, not really heeding it, and at a certain point in that society, you can read about it in Romans 1 too, at a certain point in that society, God says, okay, you go, you do it. You figure it out. I know there's believers in this country. I'm not saying like, you know, you won't have any word from God. But when a society begins to say, you know, nah, 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 you know, right? Every time some truth comes along, right? The Bible says, both here and in Romans 1, that God sometimes abandons a people in judgment, abandons them to human wisdom. Here... The word hear, the ear, right? Hear in the Old Testament always has a dual meaning when referring to God's word. Hear in their understanding is more than having sound waves bounce off your eardrum, right? It is to have it impact your heart. In other words, to hear is to obey. To refuse obedience is to harden. So here's where this integrates together. I'm kind of combining you know, points two and three here. To listen to those who have experienced pain, oppression, and injustice, not to try to excuse it or explain it, just to listen to the human words even though they might, their perspective might be off. Wounded people, sometimes their perspective's off. That's okay. But when we hear their words, 
we then can hear God's word in his Bible more clearly. Why is that? I want to share something with you I first heard from Greg Silker. You know, the Old Testament believer was often oppressed. Just read the Psalms. The New Testament believer, for the most part, except for Erastus, was at the bottom of Greco-Roman society. You know, the Romans, uh, I can't remember who it was, was Suetonius or who it was, but one of the Roman historians uh, uh, said, oh, Christianity, it's, the, it's a religion of slaves and women. Sorry, gals, he didn't mean that positively, right? Like, you know, only the uneducated, right? Which in their society, they didn't educate women very well. So it, it was bad, but anyway, you get the idea, right? Uh, this, this really looking down on Christianity uh, in fact, and here's the quote from Greg Silk, who I, seems to have stepped out. Oh, well, uh, he won't be enjoy this. But uh, uh, he said, it's hard to be, make it into the Bible if you've not spent some time in jail. That's true, you know, right? And it's really interesting. Why? Because often... To hear, believe, and obey the word of God got you in trouble. It puts you in a place of vulnerability. So sometimes when we listen to someone who's felt marginalized, we get a little bit of a, oh yeah, what would that be like? How would I respond if that were my experience, would I be embittered? So we determine as a loving, mature believer to listen rather than to spout off. We could put Facebook out of business. Yeah. So I think a third way to demonstrate God's heart is to listen. So we demonstrate God's heart by refusing to be complacent with the things that are not right in our society, by standing for justice and by listening, certainly to those in pain, but especially to listen to the word of God. The George Floyd demonstrations revealed something that we all should have known, that many in our society feel unsafe, uninvested, and excluded. Now, of course, there are things done in those times that were wrong and there are people that try to exploit that. All of that, of course, I understand that. But Amos says, let justice roll. You know, what would it mean? What's the answer to everything? Love, right? What does it mean to love someone different than me? And to help them feel so secure in the body of Christ, so valued, so respected, that they then become the full person they're to become. And as we do that, and we do that for people different from ourselves, it demonstrates to a watching world that there's healing in Jesus Christ. Um, Natasha gave us a seminar, actually, ironically, in God's timing, right before the George Floyd riots. And, uh, and her main point was, will we build relationship? There was lots of other things she said, but her, her kind of her takeaway was, will we build relationship? 
right? Where we, we trust one another, we grow. And as we do that, you know, this is a whole vision for the whole body of Christ. What would the church be? I'm talking about not like just sojourn. What would the church be if every believer in the Twin Cities was freed of the things that hold them down. They knew they were loved by their brothers and sisters, cared for and valued, so they had the confidence to rise up and be the person God called them to be so that not only, you know, the cool and the handsome and the beautiful but everybody, whatever the, the disability, whatever the color of their skin, whatever their economic, social background, felt the comp. Yes, there's one place I'm accepted. It's in the, in the church. There's one place they believe in me. It's in the church. You know, my mom turned 90 yesterday. And uh, in my note to her, I said my biggest thanks to her was she believed in me. My, my parents never went to college. They thought I was a genius. They were wrong. But, they, you know, but because they believed in me, I'd, I was in my 50s before I realized there was stuff I couldn't do. <laughs> I just assumed that, well, my mom and dad think I can do it. I can do it, right? I just try it. Oops, oh, well, that fell. Okay, I'll try again. You know, so you know, when, when you are believed in, when you are accepted you are free to become the person that God has called you to be. And of course you have to repent, right? That's a part of it. You've got to get free of your sins and your bondages and all the stuff that's holding you back. So what if every person in the body of Christ in the Twin Cities felt that kind of love and acceptance? And they began to flourish. It's only good for everybody, right? Amen. Stand with me. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. So Father, we thank you that you have called us to love one another. And some of us are, it's easier to love and some of it's harder, but that's okay. Because we're imitating you. You first loved us. So Father, as we stand here this morning, we just want to be the people you've called us to be. And we want to be that together. We want to love one another. We want to demonstrate to a watching world that people of different races and cultures and backgrounds can love one another. We're not going to become clones, but we can love one another. So Father, as we stand here today, we pray in Jesus' name that you would heal your church. You would heal the racial divides in your church, that you'd enable us to build relationship, to do your will, to demonstrate to a watching world the reality of your grace. I'm going to ask you to leave your head bowed for a moment. Um, so grateful for each one of you here. Just want to say something very simple. Very basic, but very important. Jesus Christ died on the cross so that everything you've ever done wrong could be forgiven, removed from your soul. You can be completely at peace with God. If you're not at peace with God, right now, I'm going to ask you to raise your hand. I'm going to pray with you, okay? So I'm just not at peace with God.
There's things in my soul. Just, yeah, just raise your hand. We're going to pray. Everyone else, keep your, your heads, your eyes shut. <laughs> okay, not at peace with God. Yeah, okay, let's just, let's just pray. Lord, in Jesus' name, as we come before you right now, we're asking that the power of the cross of Jesus Christ to cleanse and forgive would wash over our souls. As we confess our sins, your word says you're faithful and just and will forgive us and purify us from all unrighteousness. 1 John 1, 9. So that we ask your cleansing. Second and last question. Again, I'm just going to ask you to raise your hand. I'll pray. As God is stirring you around the fact that the healing of the body of Christ around race, around racial reconciliation, you say, I feel like I want to do something. You may not even know what, but you're just feeling stirred in this area. Just raise your hand. I'll pray with you. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So Lord, in Jesus' name, we just ask you to lead us to bring the healing, greater, deeper relationship and healing in this area, in the body of Christ. Lead and guide each one that we could know your heart. We ask for those that are at home, listening, participating on live stream, we ask that you would touch where there is people being stirred to go deeper in relationship in some way, to somehow connect in a deeper way. We ask you'd bless that, Lord God. And we pray that a year from today, that the body of Christ in the Twin Cities would be a better example of what it means to live out the gospel with black and white, Asian and Native American, Pacific Islander, all the different groups, Latino, in Jesus' name, that we would demonstrate the love of Christ to a watching world. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.